Pastor Paul is busy with a series through the book of Acts, and so he asked me if I would speak on this passage from Acts 4, verse 32, through to chapter 5, verse 10. And um, I'm going to put it on the screen and read it, but it'd be nice if you keep your Bibles open with you, because I'll be referring to these scriptures time and again. So, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon, excuse me, was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. And then starting with chapter 5, it, the word but almost signifies this, this huge contrast all of a sudden. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. And instantly she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. That's a scary incident we read about. Shall we just pray for a moment? Our Father, as we look at Scripture again and as we examine your word, we can only ask that you will open our hearts and our minds Lord, that you will speak to, excuse me, speak to us and just apply these truths to our lives. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. As I was preparing for this passage, I came to see three things. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And some of you heard this title that I was going to speak on. All wanted to know who is who. <laughs> well, just by way of introduction. The first church had just been born. We saw that in Acts chapter 2. And it was a great church. At that point, there was probably more than 15,000 members. And they were not only great in quantity, they were also great in quality. We saw that they, they were full of love, and there was genuine fellowship, and there was tremendous joy. In Acts 2.46, we read, They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all 
the people. Can you, can you just sense the excitement in the church? The excitement of coming to church. The excitement of meeting together with fellow believers. And people were being saved daily. Each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And I think never before had the work of the Holy Spirit been so visible and so powerful in the lives of God's people as at that time. And as could be expected, what? Satan swung into action. Just two chapters later. And he first tried to stop the church through persecution. And uh, Peter and John were thrown into jail. We read that in the first part of uh, Acts chapter 4. Peter and John were thrown into jail. But as usual, Satan overreached himself and Peter and John ended up testifying to the gospel before the Sanhedrin. And it only made the church bolder. Because we read them praying, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. And in verse 31, then they preached the word of God with boldness. And so Satan must have realized, well, that is not going to work. And then, so then he resorted to infiltration by tempting believers to sin. And in chapter 5, we have the record of the first sin in the new church. And the greatest threat to any church's effectiveness is the sins committed by its members. Not the corruption in the world. Not persecution from the world. Now, having said that, I need to point out, there will never be a perfect church. Why not? Because we are imperfect people. <laughs> That's for sure. The, um, and it's healthy to acknowledge that. In the early 1900s, the London Times approached a number of well-known authors and asked them to write an essay with the topic, What is Wrong with the World? And G.K. Chesterton, that famous Christian author, wrote back, Dear Sirs, I am. And that became a very famous quote. And how many times have you and I not heard people say, Well, I don't go to church because there are just too many hypocrites. And my answer is always, well, there's always room for more. You know, so. No, the Bible has always presented its heroes as real people with real faults. I mean, a good example of that is just King David, the greatest king Israel ever had. Yet he committed adultery, committed murder. In the 17th century, an artist by the name of Samuel Cooper was asked to paint a portrait of Oliver Cromwell. And Oliver Cromwell was a very ugly man. He had lots of warts on his face. And so the artist left out the warts, you know, just to sign of not offend Cromwell. And when Cromwell saw it, he sent it back and he said, paint me as I am, warts and all. And that's actually where the phrase uh, originated, the warts and all. But, you know, the Bible heroes are always shown with warts and all. However... It is one thing to be imperfect. It is another thing to sin willfully. And in our passage, we have some stark contrasts. We have the good in the church, we have the bad in the church, and we have the ugly in the church. Hence the title, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Well, let me start off with the good. 
and the good in the churches, there was unity amongst the believers. They thought they felt the same, which is amazing considering a church of about 15,000 people. You say, how can a church like that get unity amongst themselves? And, the answer, and, and, and that's what we read in, in Acts 4.30. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And the reason? Because they were more preoccupied with each other than with themselves. And in verse 32 we read, they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. No wonder they had such an impact on their community. Do you remember what Jesus had said to the disciples in John 13, 35? Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And nothing weakens a church so much as when there is disunity among its members, disunity among its leaders. And you know, if, if you think about it, most of the hurts that Christian people experience have been inflicted by someone else in the church. That's the general experience of most of us. And that is a very, very sad comment on the church. The second reason why this church was so good was because there was powerful preaching. Verse 33 said, The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. And the word powerful here does not refer to how it was preached, but what was preached. And sound biblical teaching always leads to a healthy church. That's why Paul writes to Titus and he says, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And a healthy church is one where we believe that the Bible is the complete word of God, the inspired words of God. And as a result of this, powerful preaching great grace was upon them all now it's interesting in acts 4:33, that the new translations say god's grace was upon them all but in the original it doesn't say god's grace it just says great grace or grace was upon them all because maybe it wasn't only god's grace they had the favor of the people that's grace acts 2 says in, they were enjoying the goodwill of all the people and they had the favor of the lord because each day the lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved and God's favor will always rest on a church where there is unity and where there is sound teaching. And then there is the third characteristic, genuine caring. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. And nobody said, this is mine. They all said, this is ours. And verse 32 actually said they all shared everything. And I think they had the right view of money. And the right view of money is that it is simply a trust from the Lord. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? And the right prayer for you and I to pray is, Thank you, Lord, for what you've given to me. What would you like me to do with it? Because that's the right view of money. Now, please note, what happened in this church was not some form of Christian communism. Because in the first place, nobody was forced to give. This is very clear in Acts 5 verse 4. 
And throughout Scripture, giving to the Lord has always been voluntarily. For example, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. Please note, it's not a fixed amount. And don't give reluctantly or, or in response to pressure. And then there's a quote from Scripture, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And if you have to give to God's work under a sense of obligation, my advice to you is keep it and spend it on yourself. Because it's just of no good. What's more, this was an ongoing process. It says that from time to time, as people had need. It was not a case of all the believers putting everything into one massive pool and then, you know, just living off that. That would be communism. And it was done only by those in positions to help. It says those who had lands. And they were not referring to their own homes that they were selling. They were referring to the extra stuff, the investments they had made. You know, property they'd invested in. And they were willing to give that up. And we are never required to give what we don't have. Now a great example is given here is Barnabas. We read, for instance, and that's it, it's, it's just an example there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Let me just comment on Isn't it great to have a nickname that reflects a positive virtue? And you know, nicknames can have a very powerful impact. Uh, I knew of a, a father who always, his, his daughter, when she was very small, always wanted to wear a crown. And so he, guess what her nickname became? Princess. <laughs> When I was at school in the last four years of my life, my nickname was Worm. And that had the very opposite effect. <laughs> and nicknames, and one needs to be careful about nicknames. But here it is, Barnabas, and I think that encouraged Barnabas to, um, to do that. He, um, for example, if it wasn't for Barnabas encouraging Paul, he might not have been accepted by the leaders in Jerusalem. He might still have been stuck in Antioch. And then when Paul and John Mark had a huge fallout, it was Barnabas who encouraged John Mark and took him to Cyprus on a mission trip. And if he, Barnabas had not done that, we might not have the gospel of Mark today. And it says he sold a field. Again, an indication. A field is not something where he lived. He owned and he brought the money to the apostles. Can I just comment that? Why bring it to the apostles? Why not give to people that you see a need? And the reason is simple, that the apostles would be more aware of the need throughout the church, and they would be able to, because it came from a central distribution, to make sure that there was a more even distribution. And even when they did that, there were problems, and as we read in Acts chapter 6. And you remember that some of the people complained that the Greek widows were not getting a fair share, and that's when the apostles said, let's appoint some deacons that can look after the fair distribution of this money. That's just by the way. But Barnabas was only one of many. Acts 2.44, all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Well, that was the good in the church. And then came the bad, the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. And there's that word, but, in contrast to what we, you know, what we read about Barnabas, there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some of the property. Ananias, by the way, meant the Lord is gracious. And Ananias did not live up to that name. And Sapphira meant beautiful, and she didn't live up to that name. 
And he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount with his wife's consent, and he kept the rest. That was just deceit. And it's hard to believe that in the middle of this beautiful church, we find the seeds of sin. And it may well be that the story of Ananias and Sapphira was to the start of the church what the story of Achan was to the start of Israel entering the promised land. And in both cases, it not only prevented the progress of God's people, but it led to severe punishment and judgment. You say, why did they do this? What was their motive? Well, please note, their sin was not that they withheld some money. In fact, they were not under any obligation to give anything at all. People, Peter said to him, you didn't have to give it. And you didn't have to give it all. So that was not their sin. Their sin was being dishonest about how much they had given. They claimed they had given everything to the Lord. And perhaps they had seen the recognition that Barnabas got. And thought, well, here's a chance to get some status in the church. Here's a chance just to let people know, well, we're, you know, we're the super, you know, whatever it was. And, and they, they lied not only to men, they actually lied to God himself. Peter said to him, you've not lied just to human beings, but to God. And all sin is an offense to God. Please note, all sin is an offense to God. Even that little white lie that we tell every now and then. And it's very interesting, when the prodigal son came home to his father, you know what he said? He said, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. We would have said, no, well, he sinned against his father, you know, taking all his inheritance. But no, he acknowledged, and he was right there, that when we sin, when we offend someone else, we are actually also sinning against God. Satan had filled their hearts. Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? And the question immediately says, well, does that mean that Satan can fill the life of a Christian? And a good South African answer is, yeah, near. Now, please note, Satan cannot enter a Christian's life. 1 John 5, 18 clearly says, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's son holds them securely, and the evil one can not touch them. But if we continue to sin deliberately, it certainly gives Satan a foothold. And Ephesians 4 verse 27 speaks about that. Ananias and Sapphira, even though Peter said you've allowed Satan to fill your heart, had to take full responsibility. Because he said to them, how could you do a thing like that. It was you who did it. And Ananias could never say, well, the devil made me do it. As some people say to excuse their sin. And you know that it all started in their thoughts. Because Peter said to them, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? And all sin starts in our thoughts. And then it becomes a progressive Reaction. And that's why in James 1 we read, Temptation comes from our own desires, which obviously take place in our thoughts. 
which then entice us and drag us away. And these desires or these thoughts give birth to sinful action. It starts with our thoughts and it leads into a progress until it ends in sin. And they thought they could get away with it. After all, I mean, who would know? But sin always becomes known sooner or later. Way back in Numbers 32, verse 23, Moses said, If you fail to keep your word, then you will have sinned against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Jesus himself said in Luke 8:17, There is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. Sometime or other, it will come out. And Satan had filled their hearts. And the result was, their judgment was swift. Acts 5.5, 5, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell on the floor and died. Can you imagine the shock he got when Peter asked to come and see him? He was probably expecting praise. He was expecting applause. And all he got was condemnation. Sapphira actually had the chance to own up. But she didn't. Peter said to her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. Now, at that moment, she could have said, no, it wasn't. She could have confessed, but she didn't. And they both probably died of a massive heart attack. And if you and I are convicted about some sin, it's important that we confess it immediately before it is too late. Now, I actually thought about these young men. You know, when Ananias died, these young men were asked, hey, guys, please, will you just take and bury him? And it probably took about three hours. And it must have been a most unpleasant task. And when they came back, whew, glad that's over. Oh, no, not again. <laughs> and they had to do the same for Sapphira. Let me just add a, note, a footnote. Does God kill Christians? The answer is yes. If we deliberately continue to dishonor his name. Just listen to 1 Corinthians 11:29. If you eat bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Let me just stop there for a minute. When you and I take communion, as we have just done, we are publicly declaring that what Jesus Christ did for us and his sacrifice is applied to our lives, that we have received his forgiveness, that we've been cleansed. But then he says, you dis your lives don't back it up. And in that way, you dishonor him. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. Now, please note, this does not refer to imperfect believers like you and I who stumble from time to time. This refers to people whose lifestyle contradicted their profession of faith. And that's why Paul warns them, don't drink judgment on yourself. But now verses 31 and 32 clearly states that God does this, but that they do not lose their salvation. He just takes them home to heaven before they can do any more damage to his church. And you can understand, great fear sees the whole church. I mean, who wouldn't be scared out of their wits? But it was a healthy fear. Very likely, many church members started examining themselves and confessing their known sin. You see, God, oops, great, everyone who heard it was terrified, great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. See, God is serious about the purity of his church. 
And he said in 1 Peter 1.16, You must be holy because I am holy. He bought it with his own blood to make it a light to the world. It was not meant to be a nice social club. Well, that brings us to the ugly. And you know, you can say, wasn't the sin of Ananias and Sapphira ugly enough? Yes, deliberately lying is a sin against God. But that was only the visible offense. There was a much deeper underlying sin, and that's where it really gets ugly. And that was the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. The word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word for masks that were used in the theater. When you put on a mask, you're pretending to be someone else. You're not being yourself. And Ananias and Sapphira had pretended to be spiritual when in fact they were worldly. Yes, we as Christians are not perfect. And we all behave in an ungodly manner on occasions. And it's healthy to acknowledge that we are struggling with these weaknesses. But the sin of hypocrisy is to pretend in public that we are what we are not in private by the way that's why the acid test of our faith is what our family members think whether it's real or not because you can't bluff your family members Ananias and Sapphira wanted everyone to think that they were super saints and sadly enough we still see that today in the church don't we and the involvement in the church can so easily become an ego trip for somebody because it allows us to be a somebody. And I must be honest, I have often struggled with these issues of what are my true motives? Do I preach because I really want to honor the Lord? Or do I preach because it's, it stokes your ego to have people listen to you and, and people say afterwards, oh, that was great. Lord, what are my motives? And you know what my answer is? I don't know. We totally answered, no, my motives are always... I don't know, and I just commit them to the Lord. I said, Lord, I don't know what my real motives are. You just take care of that. And it's healthy just to acknowledge that. They sought glory for themselves. And in Isaiah 48, 11, God said, How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. And it is dangerous to take credit that belongs to the Lord. Now, please, when people say thank you or, 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 or you know, compliment you for something, please don't be pious and say, no, it wasn't me, it was just the Lord. Yeah, that's horrible. Just say thank you very much. But in your heart, you say, Lord, you heard that. You do with it what you want. And then, because if you think about it, why, why do we sometimes want to impress other Christians? What, what do we gain by that? An hypocrisy. In Christians is one of Satan's key strategies to pollute the church. And in the church there are always people who speak Christianese. They know how to act spiritual. They may even get into positions of leadership and in that sense give Satan a measure of control in the church. I remember one pastor telling me how he absolutely dreaded deacons meetings. Because of one or two deacons who loved to throw their weight around. Three weeks ago, I met with the senior pastor of a huge mega church here in Pretoria. And he told me how he finally got up enough courage to confront an extremely difficult elder 
who over the years had caused so many problems with his negativity. And the pastor told him, you are a tool of Satan. Which in fact he was. Well, that takes courage for that pastor to do that. But it happens. And it happened in the early church. It happens in the church today. And it's probably the greatest reason why unbelievers stay away from church. And that's why Paul, he reprimands the Jews. And he says, you are so proud knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. And today we could say, no wonder unbelievers mock God because of the way some Christians behave. It's one of the greatest strategies of Satan. And it's probably the greatest reason why unbelievers stay from church. Now, I was joking about saying there's always room for more. When people say, no, they don't come to church because of the hypocrites, I ask them if they know of anybody who's ever counterfeited a 30 rand note. And the answer is no. And you know why people don't make 30 rand counterfeit notes? Because genuine 30 rand notes don't exist. And whenever you come across a counterfeit, it's always evidence that the genuine article exists. And when you meet up with counterfeit Christians, you must know it's only because they are genuine as well. And I encourage people not to look at, to look at Jesus and not look at some of his followers. God hates hypocrisy more than any other sin. No one is so ugly in God's eyes as someone who paints spiritual beauty where there is none. And you know, it's very interesting that Jesus frequently mixed with the bad people in society. Luke 15, 2 says he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. And when you eat with people, it's a way of saying, I accept you. Yet, he never condemned them. Isn't that interesting? And although he hates the sin, he loves the sinner, he never condemned any one of them, not even the pagan Roman soldiers. He only condemned the hypocrites. One example, Matthew 23, 13. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious, of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And maybe that's why God hates hypocrisy so much. Because it actually prevents other people from finding the Lord. There are at least six such records that Matthew has. He tells six different times, on six different occasions, where Jesus condemned the hypocrites like that. Did you know that there is a special place in hell reserved for hypocrites? Matthew 24, 51, he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place for the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People, this is serious stuff. It is better to openly reject Christ than to say you know him, but your life doesn't back it up. About two years ago, I took somebody who comes to our church every now and then. I took him out for coffee, and I talked to him about his relationship. And you know what he said? No, I am not a Christian. And that's a sad comment. But at least he had the courage to admit that, rather than to pretend that he's all very spiritual and oh, everything is going fine. 
And Jesus said in Revelation 3.16 that people who were neither hot nor cold would be spewed over his mouth. Now the problem is that nobody is a conscious hypocrite. Think about that for a minute. Nobody says, I'm going to be hypocritical. I'm going to say one thing and do another thing. Others may see our hypocrisy, but we never see it ourselves. And so we convince ourselves that what we did was justified. Some of you may have read one of my books entitled The Need to be Right, where I talk about how we deceive ourselves into believing that we are right. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 3.18 we are warned, stop deceiving yourselves. And the fact that there is such a command suggests that it's possible for Christians to be deceived. Or we say, well, you know, our sins are just human shortcomings. I mean, after all, nobody's perfect. 1 John 1.8, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. Again, there's that self-deceit and not living in the truth. Or we put the blame on others, and it started way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam said to the Lord, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And not only did he blame his wife, he blamed the Lord. And people say, well, if it hadn't been for so-and-so, and if it hadn't been for such-and-such-and-such. And such and such. Well, let me close. What are the safeguards against hypocrisy? What can we do to avoid falling into this trap of hypocrisy? Well, first of all, we need to make sure that our faith is real. Do you know that the only time when believers are told to examine themselves is in 2 Corinthians 13.5 when we are told examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. And if you are not sure, really sure that you are a born again child of God, it may be that you are not. And I would urge you to get in contact with our pastor and say, Pastor, how can I be sure that I am, that my faith is genuine and that it's real? Secondly, we need to acknowledge our own depravity. Romans 7:18. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. And when we acknowledge that, it means that we no longer have to keep up this facade. For example, when Joy and I present marriage seminars, we tell the couples about the fights we have and the conflicts we have. Yes, and also how we dealt with them. But it means we don't have to try and keep up a pretense. We've got the perfect marriage, which we don't, by the way, because that requires two perf perfect people, and she is not. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> And we need to acknowledge our own struggles. And that's why James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Just last week I shared in our cell group. I, a few weeks ago I had to go to Namibia. And I, I, I was so uptight about it, the COVID test. And what if it isn't, you know, if, if it's positive? Or what if I don't get the test in time? And, you know, the whole issue. And the Lord just so convicted me. He says, Arnold, you are just not trusting me. And I struggle with issues like that. And of course, and it's, it's healthy to admit that. And let's pray for one another and encourage one another. And then maintain a strong love relationship with the Lord. 
Jesus said in John 15, 9 and 10, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. Why would he say remain in my love unless it's a, a, a problem that we are so inclined to withdraw from his love? But we cannot maintain a love relationship with him if we don't spend time with him. Howard Hendricks, that well-known preacher, did a survey of 254 men in the ministry who had had a moral fall. And he discovered four things about them, but the only one I want to mention is not a single one of them had a meaningful, quiet time on a daily basis. These were ministers. But you see, when they opened the Bible, they opened it to look for the next sermon. Not to sit down and say, Lord, will you speak to me today? And I know it's not just having a quiet time by itself because one can do it out of duty. You can do it very superficially. You can read just a few little, you know, you can just listen to these devotions that go out sometimes in the church and just say, oh, well, I've had my quiet time. No, no, please, please don't ever replace meaningful time with the Lord. And the focus of a quiet time should always be on an intimate relationship with him. And, of course, we cannot have a meaningful love relationship unless you spend significant time with him. And then ask the Lord daily to highlight any sin in our lives. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And I often pray. In fact, most mornings I say, Lord, is there something in my life? Is there an area where I'm deceiving myself? Is there an area where I'm dishonoring you? And why is it so important? Because it is very difficult to stray far from the Lord in the space of 24 hours. Because drifting away from him is always a gradual process. And when we meet daily with the Lord, that's the best way to counteract that. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you that in Scripture you present both the good and the bad and the ugly. Thank you for the example of a man like Barnabas and many other believers who were so willing to share with others, who cared for others. And yes, Lord, thank you also for the example of Ananias and Sapphira that serves as a warning for us not to put up spiritual pretenses. Make us genuine that what we are at home and what we are in public will always be the same. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen.